This is E-Retailer Conversations on PBN, the Profitable Business Network. Now the host of E-Retailer Conversations with Principal of Profits Plus Solutions, here's your host, Tom Shea, and co-host, Bill Kendi. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Thanks for taking the evening away from your business and your family time to come and be with us to talk about business. Glad you could be with me. This is Tom Shea, your host. Welcome to the July 24, 2014 edition of the E-Retailer Conversation. Let's quickly take care of the necessaries of business before we start inviting the guest in. Uh, tonight's uh, conversation is going to be recorded. It will be on the Profits Plus website in two formats. One is an MP3 file so that you can download it for an iPod or other similar device, as well as it will be there for a click and listen format so that you can simply go to the ProfitsPlus.org website, click on this link, sit and listen to it, or any one of the other conversations that we've had over the past six plus years. Uh, during the time tonight, we will be monitoring email, uh, email address to editor at profitsplus.org, and we'll be following my Facebook page to see if there's any questions that come in that we will need to put in front of our guest. The recording will be up there hopefully sometime tonight. As always, we are dependent upon Bruce, the information stud, uh, and his abilities to get to it, as well as our abilities to make sure that we get this thing recorded correctly and and put up there. Uh, that being said, that's all taken care of, ready to go. Let's call in to our um, my co-host tonight, my friend from the uh, from the cold north. Uh, although he uh, he was down here, he had a bit of time to experience uh, what we go through here in Florida last week. He got to enjoy our uh, 95-pound mosquitoes and our muggy hot weather and the afternoon rains and all the nastiness that we we go through here in Florida uh, because he was a speaker here in Florida last week at the ICAST show. For those of you who are not from that industry, uh, ICAST show is the people who are in the uh, sport fishing industry. They have their annual event, and it's down in Orlando. So uh, that being said... Mr. Bill, are you with me tonight, my friend? I, I am here, sir. And <laughs> yes, I did get an opportunity to experience the humidity. Um, I did notice that I got down there on a Tuesday and it rained on Wednesday, Thursday. But it did turn sunny when I was getting on a plane on Friday. So there is refreshing yes. there, but I did not experience any 95-pound mosquitoes. Actually, that's that's how we treat our guests. We get we have you come down, and we have signs at the state line that say, uh, "Welcome to Florida, the Sunshine State." And I remember when I was a kid traveling to and from fa Florida, and my father used to say, "Every time we come here, coming across the state line, the thing is always raining right there." Uh -huh. False well, advertising at its best. You know, I figured. You know, I mean, that gives me a reason to come back, aside from being able to maybe get over to see you. How are you? You're about an hour and a half from Orlando, aren't you, Tom? It has been anywhere from 75 minutes to more than four hours for the same identical sure. drive. It's yeah. a big bridge to go across. It's all across Tampa, through Lakeland. Uh, fortunately, the convention center, I, is, that, is that where you were? Was the convention center? Yeah, I was at the Orange County Convention Center, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the big one, and you're, I don't know, north, south, or, or west building. And as you are there, uh, 
that's on the far west side of the area. When I was traveling that direction Sunday and a hotel somewhere close to that area, it was good that I got off right as it went to gridlock. And that was on a Sunday afternoon trying to get into the city of Orlando. Yeah, just the way it happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I've been to Orlando a bunch of times. I actually like, I like, I like that part of Florida a lot. But anyway, um, that was an interesting trip. I made it back to the frozen north just safe and sound. Thank you, sir. Okay. So you made it to it. You saw it all. Um, so we have a lot we want to talk about tonight. A lot, lot, lot of stuff. And uh, so we are excited to take and have tonight's guest with us. As I had uh, mentioned in the July edition of the e-retailer, I, I talked about this gentleman and said years ago, many, many years ago, I was reading his column in, in trade magazines. One of the things that I learned that I thought was very important to, was to find as many trade magazines as I could. So I went from business to business to business, product, services, didn't matter. And I would ask my fellow small business owners if I could have old copies of their trade magazines. And I would take them home and go through them. And certain trade magazines are more geared towards products and little infomercials where the articles you read are about some manufacturer's product that is being advertised in the magazine. And those didn't weren't of any help to me. But the other trade magazines would be those that would have writers like Bill Kendi in there. Uh, sometimes they would be articles that were specific to that industry. Some articles were a little more general in nature, and then they would have columns, and uh, I think Bill and I agree that articles kind of the big ones. Columns are the little short ones that are one page, and the a column is more like the um, opinion page in the newspaper, even though those writing are generally an expert. It's it's an opinions and some, some information about how to do your business. The articles get a little more lengthy, and they also usually quote a lot more experts. So I'd get these magazines and go through them and um, subscribe to them. And that's a suggestion I make to everybody today. You subscribe to them. You make your business sound close enough. I mean, if you're Sam's Hardware and it's a clothing magazine, you just put Sam's Store as the name of the business, and generally they give you a free subscription to the magazine. And I always enjoyed collecting these things and pulling out articles. I'd actually create sets of file folders and put all the articles in them according to different categories of information. Uh, but our guest tonight was a person that I always remember when he wrote, I wanted to read his stuff. I wanted to see what did he have to say to people. Um, always curious with all the experts that he had and uh, finally came to a point in life where I was honored that I got this phone call one day that uh, somehow or another he found me, the reader, and uh, asked me to be his uh, his uh, his guest on the show or, or in his column. And it was kind of, uh, well, kind of a neat experience. I was thrilled with it. I enjoyed getting to be quoted by him and uh, enjoyed the fact that uh, yes, this guy does an awful lot of research to, for all of the uh, Writing does. I mean, you, you'll test that, right, Bill? That when you got to start quoting people, that's a lot, a lot of work to uh, to find the people and get a time of an audience in front of them, and get to talk to them about um, who they are and what they know. And uh, well, it's just it's time consuming. Pretty yes, much so. The truth. Okay. 
So, that being said, let's see. Let me put a little music here in the background because this uh, song has a reference to stuff that our guest likes. Our guest tonight, Mr. Philip, not Mr. Philip, it's Dr. Philip M. Perry. Phil, as we call him. 40 years as a freelance writer. He has had his byline appear in over 3,000 times in publications. He does a syndicated column as well, trade journals, everything from pool and spa maintenance, aqua magazine, I used to write for that one, mattress manufacturing, uh, beauty store supplies, and uh, has three times won an award as the best article written by, as awarded by the ABA. Uh, he looks for people who are psychologists, management consultants, uh, attorneys in employment issues, he's got a big, big database of all kinds of people. He's um, from the northeast part of the country. He's from Massachusetts. Tonight he is joining us from Chicago where he is with a group of his peers in their national convention. So as I mentioned today, he is always uh, working to continue to educate himself. And just within the past couple of weeks, our friend Phil has now become Dr. Phil, having earned a Doctorate of Arts in Humanities from Harrison Middleton University. But we play the train song tonight from, actually this is Paul Simon, uh, not Art Garfunkel, but the song is actually George Harrison singing with Paul Simon, a little bit different. And the this, this song is about um, train riding because this is the way that Phil really enjoys uh, riding trains and he rode uh, to go to his convention. So let's all say hello, good evening, and welcome to our guest, Dr. Phil Perry. Phil, you there? Good evening, Tom and Bill. It's great to be with you this evening, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Oh, but it's all you. That's the, that's the, the truth. I mean, you're, you're a very knowledgeable person at what you do. Um, you know, I, I, in some of the information you shared with me, I, I was impressed here with someone who actually knew what the SRDS is. Yes, I, I just didn't think many people database. around the SRDS. <laughs> that is such an important database, and they, they do a great job of rounding up all of those trade journals you were talking about and putting that data in one place so people like us can, uh, can find it. Yeah, uh, I would tell anyone who's listening to us, if you are an aspiring writer for trade publications, as Bill does, as Phil does, and I do, uh, a lot of folks head off to Barnes & Noble, or hopefully more so up, a local independent bookstore like Haslam's here in St. Petersburg or Powell's out in Portland, Oregon. And, and there's a book, can't remember its name, but there's a book on the shelf that's all about magazines and who their editors are and who hires people and who does who only wants free writers and all that type of stuff. I don't Phil or Bill, do either of you know the name of that book? Yeah, well, there's a you're probably talking about writers digest. I don't yeah. remember the title. I, I just remember seeing it in a, in a bookstore one day. Well, Writer's yeah. Digest publishes the book, which is called Writer's Market. And now today, just like so many other things, that has become digital, and that's available on the web. So, but now my experience with that book that you would normally go buy is that uh, I remember taking the list of magazines 
that I was writing for at the time and going through, and I was amazed at how many magazines that I was writing for with, under contract, and yet when I look through the book, it's like they don't hire writers. They don't hire writers. And I go, okay, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. So many times they missed it. So I, you know, the folks I would tell you is uh, I don't know where Phil gets his version of it, but when I get a copy of SRDS, which is this great, big, thick thing, um, I have a sister-in-law who's in an advertising agency, and they get this, what does it come out, I guess monthly, and she takes the SRDS, and before it hits the trash can, you know, sends over a copy to me. Mm-hmm. That is an so, excellent, an excellent source. And, and it's got more good information than the other book. And uh, it is also digitalized now. That's uh, they have their own website, and the data is updated uh, as they get new information in. So, that being said, um, I consider myself a, a decent writer. I think Bill's a very good writer at the stuff that uh, Bill has written over the years. Uh, and then comes along Phil. That you know, it's, it's kind of like getting to see and talking to somebody who's got a, a lot a lot of variety i think i have variety in magazines uh, but i think you've got a whole lot more than i got my friend um so i got a bunch of questions and things i would like to ask you Wonderful. um par- part of what i want to do is separate for people uh i'm thinking i was at, speaking to a group of pharmacists on monday and i was expressing to them concern about the media and how the media influences people and the things that, when it comes out in media, it's kind of accepted as gospel, and that's correct. Um, for example, have either of you seen the book called um, Confessions of a Media Manipulator? No. I'm sorry, I have not seen that. Okay. Uh, I, I found it only by way of listening to this guy being interviewed on NPR one morning, and um you're probably both familiar with HARO, H-A-R-O, the help a reporter out where reporters put out leads and say, I'm looking for an expert in such and such an industry, and you know I need someone to quote. And it could be TV, radio, newspaper, magazine people. And as they go looking for experts, this guy decided he wanted to see what he could do to scam everybody. And so he started responding to all of these people out there saying, yeah, I'm an expert. And he made a comment about, he got quoted in some publication about the experts of handling a boat. And he says, I've never owned a boat in my life, but I got quoted. And he says, you know, you can manipulate the media by posing yourself, by giving these people what they want. And his experience was was to say that he found that the more information he was willing to tell them as compared to just saying, here's my name and phone number, call me if you're interested, that they he was more likely to get quoted and he just says i just started making stuff up and handing it to people mm. so the in in light of stuff like that phil you know one of the first things i i want to ask in your experience am i correct in thinking that the size of any trade publication is dependent solely upon the amount of ads they sell I would say that is a correct assumption. uh, They have to be careful about their editorial and advertising mix. It has to be just right so that it uh, conforms to the requirements of the United States Postal Service 
so that they get a good mailing rate, second-class mailing rate. So they have to have enough editorial in that magazine to qualify for that rate or they're in big trouble. So that magazine is going to expand uh, depending on how much advertising space they get. They'll have to add editorial to make sure that they are in the guidelines. Okay, good. All right. So at that point, what one of the things I'm I want to ask from your area of expertise, Bill. Same question I'd pose to you. You know, when you get these experts out there, how do you f- make sure they're an expert? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, what, every, what is it that you go through? What's your steps that you go through to make sure this person really is an expert at what they're talking about? I think it uh, it boils down to experience when you're researching a topic. If I see, if I Google a particular topic, and I see a person quoted in more than one place, and that person has been around for more than five years, and that person seems to have a credible website, and uh, and uh, has been quoted in reputable journals, I think it's a matter of judgment. Uh, uh, to the extent that uh, one accepts that expert as a qualified source. And it's not really a black and white matter. It's more like uh, looking at all the evidence and then making a reasoned uh, assessment. Okay. So you as a a writer are giving it your best shot as to, I hope I've I've really nailed someone who's good at what they do. Yeah, it's a matter of of a judgment, as I said. And I think... uh, uh, most of the time, it's not an issue. I can honestly say that over the years, I have not had a single time that I know of that I have been bamboozled by a fake source. It could happen, but uh, it's, it's highly unlikely, I think. Yeah, and you know, honestly, if I can address that song for a minute, too. After a while, um, you know, Phil, I know that you do a lot of stuff in the, in the legal aspect of writing. And after a while, when you start writing for an industry, you pretty much have those sources that you can confirm if somebody is legit or not, you know? Um, yes. At least that's what I've found. Yes, they, uh, they, they've been around a while. They've been quoted uh, elsewhere. They have books published under their name. Yeah. Um, it's just, a, it's just a, a feeling you get. It's, it's kind of a, a, a yeah. you become sensitized to that particular uh, set of forces. Okay, so you know what? Whether or not you're really getting something of uh, of value to those to those people. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, with all these three thousand, uh, and I, I've, ne- I've never known how hey, I, I see your magazine byline all over. So you've got a lot, a lot of publications. Yeah. What all do you write about? Well, year after year, the most popular topic. As far as my sales go, as far as what readers respond to, is the topic of employee motivation. How does one engineer a productive and happy workforce? That seems to be something that, and I suppose the reason is that uh, the profits of the company are so dependent upon how that workforce uh, operates. And everyone's hungry for insights uh, of whatever they can get from uh, consultants, from employment lawyers, from uh, workplace psychologists on the topic of employee motivation. Okay. But you, and you do cover a really wide, wide um, 
wide spectrum of them. Um, if I ask, do you, how many, just how many industries do you write in? I have, a, I have my column appears regularly in about 20 magazines serving different industries, uh, mostly in retailing, in small businesses, a couple of examples in the law firm, but uh, this pretty broad spectrum. I would say about 60% of my readers are retailers, about 40% are non-retailers, uh, people like manufacturers and service companies. But it's everything from, as you mentioned at the very beginning, from uh, pools and spas to, uh, to gift shops to uh, uh, maintenance companies. Everybody that is a small business who has a workforce that, uh, that they need to motivate and uh, a bottom line that they need to fatten up. Okay. Well, we're at, uh, let's see, 20 minutes past the hour. Let's take our first evening little uh, station ID, and we'll come back, re-ID our guest, and uh, we'll pose on some more questions. This is E-Retailer Conversations on PBN, the Profitable Business Network. And so this is Tom Shea, your host, along with co-host Bill Kendi on the July 24th E-Retailer Conversation. Our guest tonight is Dr. Can we just call you Dr. Phil at this point? Doctor, I suppose you can, but people will get me mixed up with the other fella. So maybe you could call me Dr. Phil, too. What, there's another Dr. Phil? I just thought you were the famous Dr. Phil. <laughs> I'm sorry you got the wrong number. Oh, okay. Well, this this is the famous Phil Perry. All right, and so uh, let me invite you to go uh, look at to, to learn more about Phil. Uh, if you're a Twitter person, you follow him at Perry Writer, P-E-R-R-Y-W-R-I-T-E-R, and, and Phil's website is editorialcalendar.net. Editorialcalendar.net. And for those of you listening, if you'd ever just like to talk to Phil, you can send him an email at phil at pm, his initials, pmperry, P-E-R-R-Y, dot com. And so Bill and I, I think Bill is probably the first time we've ever had a guest where the guest and you and I, we all do the same thing. Yeah, I know. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Right. I'm referring to butter our toast on the top. Right. Well, I was, going to, I was <laughs> referring to at least Phil and I, Tom. I can't speak to you. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so Phil, you started writing about 1974 or so? 1971 in the charming 70. town of Northampton, Massachusetts. That's far enough up north. Okay, so tell me, let's look at it first from the standpoint of magazines. From 1971 to now, what's changed most about magazines? There's no doubt that uh, the big change has come very recently. I would say in the past two years, and that's the change from paper to digital. And magazines of all kinds, from Tack and Togs magazine to uh, Chain Store Age, I'm concentrating on trade magazines there, they're all trying to figure out their own idiosyncratic formulas for making money on the web or with digital magazines. And right now it's very difficult for many of them. And they're still making money on the paper product. And that may go on for a while, but they all realize they have to somehow reach a balance and get, uh, get their goods out on the uh, Internet 
in a profitable way. That's the biggest change uh, that uh, that has occurred. Have you seen a lot a lot of drop? I mean, now you mentioned TAC and TOGS. I, I remember I used to write for them, and they were print. They went digital. I, I find a bunch of the magazines in the last four or five years that I wrote for went from print to digital, and it. I would say every two or three months when I send a marketing piece to everyone I know out there, I can always count on a couple of them come back, and I go searching, and you know, the magazine no longer exists. Yes. So many have gone out of business, and that's just a fact of life. But, you know, uh, for everyone that goes out of business, another one comes along, or maybe it's the same publisher. They decide to change the title, come out with something completely new. You know, in the first six months of this year, 15 new print magazines in the B2B, business-to-business arena, started up. Five went out of business. So uh, people are still out there trying. And uh, print is not dead, but it's uh, certainly uh, going through some, uh, some uh, uh, angst right now. So a magazine that decides to go from print to digital all of a sudden does have an awful lot of their expense drop out because their postage goes away. Uh, their print goes away. A lot of their design people can can go away. Not all, but a lot of their design people. I mean, they they do have in deciding to go digital, just a, a massive amount of expense that just disappears. But how are you finding that the trade magazines that once all that disappears, what are you finding that the magazines are doing so that the readers aren't disappearing? Well, they are coming out with new ways of delivering themselves in a more attractive digital format. Uh, it's, uh, it's not just a matter of taking, taking that old print magazine and uh, doing a uh, scan and coming out with a uh, digital equivalent. Now, some, in some cases, of course, magazines are attempting to do that. But that's, uh, that's very controversial. Many people feel that uh, you get that in your email and you have to sit there clicking with your mouse uh, emulating a paper magazine. That doesn't seem to be the, uh, the most effective way to get this job done. So uh, some magazines, such as Folio Magazine, which serves the, trade, the magazine business, they're coming out with a little bit more attractive ways of presenting themselves in a, in a digital format. So that's uh, the big, one of the big topics right now. How do, you, how do you present yourself digitally in a way that uh, the reader doesn't turn the reader off or make the reader fatigued? Mm-hmm. From, from your experience as you're, as you're talking with them, I think about numbers that I've seen from companies like MailChimp and, and Constant Contact uh, that when you look at their information and they say, here's your industry, and when you send out an email, and they're talking B2C, business to consumer, or bu- not to consumer, but business, I guess B2B in the format, it's the magazine to the retailer or, or what the retailer is sending out to the customer saying, you know, you're going to expect a 20% readership. Well, you know, at that point, if 80% of your publication electronically is disappearing to nowhere, I'm wondering, did they really have that kind of a, a bad rate when it came to print? I mean, did only 20% of the people really ever open their magazine? Or, That's you know, an excellent question. Issue? Yeah, one of the that's an excellent question. One of the uh, great things, uh, of course, there's a two sides to that coin. But one of the great things to the 
digital age is that you can get response, good reports on uh, how many people are paying attention to what you're sending to them. That was not the case with paper. So uh, that can be good or bad depending on your point of view. If you're not getting attention, that's bad, of course. But uh, yes, it's, a, it's a, uh, certainly a challenge uh, to those publishers. But it's good at least if, you, if it's, I guess at that point, if you're failing, you're going to know that you're failing and you have an opportunity to change it. Well, yes, that's, that's the good way to look at it. Uh, some else, someone else might say, we'd rather not know because our advertisers don't know. <laughs> so we'll just, uh, we'd like to just continue business as usual. But of course, uh, changing times uh, means that they cannot do that. Okay. And I want to interject something in here, too. I, I'm, I'm curious, Phil, about your take on this. You know, for a long time they're advertising, you know, of course, magazines, I don't care if they're consumer or business to business, you know, they are generated by uh, advertising revenue. There's no question, especially trades that are controlled. Um, but for a while there, you know, advertising was getting a little bit tight on the print side because people were devoting a lot of money to some of these newly evolving medias. One of the benefits, like Tom had mentioned, not only the savings of costs for printing and postage and, you know, blah, blah, but now with the, you know, with an electronic edition, you do not have these stringent advertiser to editorial ratios that you had in the past because it really doesn't cost very much more for a publisher to expand an online product where in a print version, it did. Is, you know, you're finding that actually kind of opens the opportunity for writers, for you to do more business because it's not quite as tight as it used to be before. I think yeah, that may occur. I think uh, the magazines are still in a state of experimentation at this point. Certainly, they don't have to be concerned about the old editorial advertising ratio, but now they have to be concerned about the expectations of their readers, and that's a far more difficult uh, uh, thing to assess. Uh, what, what do the readers expect as far as how much editorial, the length of the stories, uh, the number of advertisements, and how do you get those advertisements on that screen in a way that doesn't irritate the reader, the recipient? And those are very, very difficult uh, challenges to meet. With, with them, Phil, um, I, I'm curious because I, I would say as a, a reader, there's just a lot of them. Once they've gone digital, I've, I lose track of them. When it came print, it came in my doorstep. I did look better, more so at them. I mean, I had a tendency, and I guess that speaks to you know, I'm I, I'm old. I'm, I'm almost like a Bill Kendi age here. Sorry, Bill. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, I'm like you. Bill. I'm used to that piece of paper in my hands to to, to be able to to look through the pages and 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 see the stuff, but in the in the formats as to how they can lay a magazine out, um, and I'm sorry that I can't remember the name of the, the software that does it, but there's a, a software format that when you want to put a publication online, you can make it look like a magazine to where you actually move the pages over. And I mean, they've even got it neatly done with the soundtrack there where you hear like a piece of paper pulling over. Are, are magazines doing that or are they just loading it up onto... Uh, website pages and it just kind of once it's up there it stays forever and goes on forever yeah a little bit of both now that uh, that goes back to what I was mentioning before that artificial magazine that they even has the sound of the page turning it's not really the best way to 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 solve these issues 
there should be a better way that's more interactive with the reader. And that's where I mentioned that Folio magazine is trying uh, a, a different approach that seems to be a little bit more attractive for the reader. But uh, there's no real answer to your question right now. It's, uh, once again, it's a matter of uh, magazines experimenting with different formats. And uh, yes, uh, to go back to your first point about paper, uh, I uh, interviewed a trade journal editor probably 20 years ago now, and she mentioned to me she had a huge trade, uh, trade magazine. It was uh, over 10 by 15 size, uh, 10 inches by 15 inches. And she said it makes a great splash when it lands on the reader's desk. And that's one thing paper can do that the digital format cannot do. It, uh, paper can make a splash. It can force you to pick it up and look at it. Even if all you're going to do is toss it in the circular file, at least you're looking at that ad on the back page. But these digital delivery uh, magazines, they can be filtered into a uh, mailbox and sit there sight unseen forever. So that's another mm. uh, challenge of the... Of the or a quick purge thing. button and they're gone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Delete and it's gone forever. Yeah, well, I think about like uh, a magazine, and I know Bill's done some writing for him, Fishing Tackle Retailer. Uh, you know, to me, that's that's always been a great publication for years and years and years. That there's some really nice articles. I mean, a guest that we've had on here before has been Robbie Brown, and Robbie always writes great material. Uh, I to this day still look forward to getting Fishing Tackle Retailer in there. And the first thing I go looking for is trying to find the Robbie B Brown byline because I. He's like you. He's a, he's a writer that, whatever it is, I know I'm going to like to read something by that person. It's almost like having a favorite singer or a favorite artist of some sort or movie actor that you like to go see. You, you go see whatever they got just because they've got a great reputation. Well, that's a good lesson learned there for these publishers. If they can get writers and promote those writers... That's going to keep the recipient from pushing that delete button or from just filtering the magazine into a folder and forgetting it because that reader is going to want to receive that digital edition to find that writer again and read that writer's column. So that's a, uh, that's a good point uh, there to drive home. Yeah. So we, uh, we've come past the, uh, the bottom of the hour. Let's see, halfway through the show, a little bit past that. And um, we always take a break at this time to allow our, our guest, as he's in his hotel room in a nice, cool, comfortable Chicago, as he told us, we take a, um, a little station break, and we try to find a little music that's appropriate to them and give them enough time to chug down some water. Uh, our song tonight... Uh, a live 1972 version song uh, talking about trains uh, but done by the original artist not done by Arlo Guthrie riding on the city of New Orleans Illinois Central Monday morning rain. there's 15 cars and 15 restless riders Three conductors and 25 sacks of maize. They're out on a southbound odyssey And the train pulls out a Kankakee Rolls past the houses, farms, and fields And passing towns that have no name And freight yards full of old black men And the graveyards of rusted automobiles Singing good morning America, how are you? Don't you know me, I'm your native son I'm just the train they call the city of New Orleans 
I'll be going 500 miles when day's done. I was dealing. Okay, so that's for you, Phil. That's that's two songs that Bill and I picked out and uh, thought, you know, since you enjoy the train so much and your description sounds so awesome. Uh, to everyone listening, July 24th, 2014th, e-retailer conversation with Bill Kendi and Tom Shea as we are joined by our special guest tonight, Dr. Phil is in the house. Dr. Phil Perry, the writer. And uh, you find Phil, his website, editorialcalendar.net, editorialcalendar.net, and Twitter is Perry, P-E-R-R-Y, writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, to follow him. And Phil has been writing since um, early 1970s and is kind enough to join us as he is in Chicago tonight for, uh, what is the name of the organization, Phil? American Society of Business Press Editors. And how many of you are there out there? I am anticipating, it starts tomorrow morning, bright and early at 8 o'clock, and I am anticipating around, oh, 150 people. Yeah, nice nice body of folks. With plenty so, of Starbucks um, to go along. There we go. So tell me this one. Out of all these columns and all these people, uh, just how big is your database of experts that you talk to? Right now, I have 400 people in my database. This is a mix employment law attorneys, workplace psychologists, and management consultants. And uh, I add to it constantly, drop out some people constantly. Of course, I don't interview all 400 equally. I would say there are about 50 or 60 of them that I interview several times a year, one of whom is Tom Shea. We have enjoyed it. I have, I have very much enjoyed it. Um, tell me about Past the Experts. You interview people in, in your columns. Who do you remember the most? Oh, you know, the people who understand other people. Uh, there's a fellow out on the coast, the West Coast, named Ian Jacobson, and he's uh, semi-retired at this point, but uh, any, any uh, challenging workplace scenario or difficult employee situation that I run by him, he has a very thoughtful and uh, understanding analysis and solution for the reader. He's, uh, so these, any individual like that who, uh, who really understands people I find most uh, memorable. Have you ever interviewed um, Chris Zane, the uh, the bicycle retailer from Connecticut? Well, I am sorry, I have not. Uh, that name does sound slightly familiar, but I apologize. I do not uh, place him right now. He he wrote the book uh, Reinventing the Wheel. Uh-huh, Fascinating yeah. book. Boy, a book on retail, a great one. Or um, how about um, Have you ever interviewed Mattress Mac? Mattress Mac, no. Uh, Mattress Mac is from Houston and owns uh, a business called Gallery Furniture. Uh, if you're a follower of college football, uh, at, at one point his one location store had its own college bowl game. <laughs> well, that's and good. he's known for doing some things like, uh, I don't remember how he, what the, the conditions were last year, but he'll come up with these 
crazy offers like Super Bowl weekend, come shop at my store, and if Seattle does something or other to win the Super Bowl, which they happen to do, then anything that has been purchased in my store on Super Bowl weekend before the game starts, uh, bring your receipt in and I'll give you your money back and you get to keep the furniture. Oh, isn't that great? You know, so he's got a big size insurance policy that he's laid off this bet. Uh, but he, you know, he pulls stunts like that. And the story that I heard him speaking uh, last month was that for that event, he sold more than $3 million in furniture just over oh, that weekend. That's remarkable. That's amazing. <laughs> just, I, you just love people who can do, uh, you know, fun stuff like that. Um, now, don't forget, the people I interview uh, will be people who uh, would be of interest to many industries. So, uh, Mattress Mac, I really would not interview because I need to use his quotes in more than one industry, not only the mattress industry, but also the pool and spa industry. So I'm going to be interviewing the psychologists, the uh, management consultants, those people, rather than uh, individual industry people. So of your 400 experts as they visit with you, what's, what's the factor that they tell you that when businesses don't make it. What's the top two or three reasons as to, you know, what, what did they do wrong or what did they fail to do as to why they, they died? I would say the number one reason is taking on too much debt. And, and, and uh, that can be bad for a number of reasons, one of which is uh, a bank can change its uh, parameters, its rules for extending revolving credits, and once those rules are changed, if you don't have a bank B lined up, you're out of business. Yeah, so that's, I would say that's one of the top ones. Another one would be lack of uh, uh, understanding in uh, managing people. And this goes back to my first comment uh, that the most popular topic is uh, developing and engineering a productive and happy and effective workforce. And that's very difficult for some people to do. And uh, that's a good way to go out of business so when, you know, when you don't have that uh, expertise and have no interest in uh, developing it. So when someone like Jeff Bezos, the gentleman who founded Amazon, mm-hmm. uh, made a comment at some point in time to the effect of, and I, I'm paraphrasing, I'm just probably rewriting the whole thing, uh, Amazon never put anybody out of business it was the essence of his comment he says it's the future that puts people out of business and their failure to come forward with the future if you were interviewing bezos not from the standpoint of he's because he's amazon but because he is a person who is apparently a a thought leader with regard to all kinds of things i mean he could be for your aqua people he could be for your beauty people all kinds of people who are just the idea of how do i make something different i i could see his, some of his information applying because there's uh i can't think what the guy's name is who does all the online stuff for for legal stuff for lawyers mm-hmm. and the fact that online mm-hmm. lawyer has created an, an amazon type of format for for legal materials online if you were interviewing bezos would you 
question him on that comment? Would you say he's right? He, he's not putting people out of business? It's the future that puts him out? Well, of course, that oversimplifies, uh, given the fact that Amazon is part of the future and that uh, certainly Amazon is taking advantage of the uh, forces that are out there in the marketplace. Uh, so uh, I guess it uh, boils down to a chicken or the egg uh, thing, which came first, Amazon or the, uh, or the Internet. But they certainly work together. And uh, to, a, to some extent, his statement is correct, but uh, that's not too helpful for the retailers. They have to grapple with reality as it is and uh, somehow accommodate themselves. Now, would I challenge him on that? Probably, uh, well, I suppose I could challenge him by saying yes, but, um, but uh, are you, is your tremendous dominant market uh, position being utilized in an improper way capitalizing on your monopoly or semi-monopoly position in a way which is unfair and perhaps damaging in the long term uh, to the uh, buying public. And he would probably say, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. You know, but you know, when I think of someone like Bezos, after he had made the comment, I happened to be up in... Uh, Waterloo, Ontario, and walking down um, King's, King Street. This is in Waterloo, Kitchener is the area where Blackberry comes from. And there was a bookstore there called Chapters, and Chapters is the Canadian version of uh, Barnes & Noble. Mm -hmm. And they had a coffee shop in there. And I remember another comment from Bezos that was to the effect of, we can never replace the experience, the feeling that a customer will have when they walk into a bookstore, sit in a chair, have a cup of coffee, and can feel the pieces of paper as they turn them and hear the sound of the paper as they turn it, looking at a book in front of them. Mm -hmm. Getting the short of it, Bezos saying, I can't do that. I can't replace that. And as I walked into the store, the coffee shop on one side, the bookstore on the other. Here's a sign that depending upon which side you're coming from, from the store or the coffee shop, it says, don't take your book into the coffee shop. And on the other side, it says, don't take your coffee into the bookshop. Yeah. All right, now I understand what they're trying to get around is, hey, don't pour your coffee on our book and ruin the thing. <laughs> but you know, my other observation is to say, he just told you what he can't do and you played into his hand. It's it's kind of like I mentioned this, Chris Zane, to you. Uh, Zane made a comment that last year he had 5,000 test rides of bicycles. And he sells bicycles anywhere from hundreds of dollars to probably $12,000, top most expensive. Mm. And his comment is how wrong it is in trying to build a relationship with a new customer if when they walk in the door and want to test ride a bicycle, the first thing I do is ask them for a credit card and a driver's license to hold on to in case they go wandering off. Mm -hmm. To which you ask him the question, okay, so out of 5,000 bicycles, bicycle test rides last year, how many did you lose? Mm -hmm. And the answer was four. Mm. Now, that don't mean there were 5,000 different people, but, boy, that's a pretty big sampling there, and you got to say they're... To doing stuff like that, there has to be a cost of uh, a business to it. And so, if you you lost four bikes, 
I just look at people like that and say, you know, aren't they trying to tell us something as to how a small business can really learn something from somebody? Yes. Several years ago, I interviewed a someone who who uh, commented on that very topic. He said that independent, small, independent retailers and small businesses have tremendous advantages. They just don't use them. And I think your story there about the coffee and the books is a good example. Uh, small businesses can provide a tremendous psychological, can make tremendous psychological connections with customers. But so often you walk into a small store and the one person is sitting behind the cash register or the sales counter instead of uh, out in the uh, aisles interacting with, uh, with customers. Mm-hmm. It's one of those, you've got the advantage, yeah. And you know, it's one of these. Oh, I'm so small, I can't compete. And it's like, yeah, but maybe it's a mouse hole you're trying to go through. You can go through mm-hmm. it; they can't. Mm-hmm. That is correct. Yes, that is so. correct. You know, the and interacting with the customers is uh, is an old cliche, but uh, yeah, stores don't do it. Whether it's the small retailer or the big box store, uh, I'm often reminded of uh, back in the early days, and perhaps even still today, at Home Depot, the board, everybody on the board of directors is required to spend X number of hours in a store interacting with customers. And that, I just found that so, uh, so striking that a big corporation would, uh, would make that the requirement. And as I was writing stories about the Home Depot, I was also struck many, many years ago when they were much smaller. The Bernie Marcus uh, would always tell the staff, leave the curtains in the aisles, interact with the customers. Don't worry about stock in the shelf. That's not the top priority. Top priority is talking with the customers. And that's uh, one reason why they grew so big, I think. Okay, well, we've, uh, we've made it through a good chunk of the evening. We're, let's take a quick station break. Uh, we'll come back and uh, do another ID, and then uh, Bill and I will talk about next month's guest, and we'll follow up behind that with uh, a little bit more time with our guest. This is the Profitable Business Network. And this is the July 24, 2014 e-retailer conversation. Your host, Tom Shea, co-host, Bill Kendi, and special guest tonight joining us as he is uh, at a convention in Chicago. Our guest tonight is Dr. Phil Perry, who, if you are a good reader of trade magazines, as all of us should be as small business owners, you have undoubtedly, somewhere along the line, come across columns that are written by Phil Perry in, in all kinds of magazines. Phil's been out there since 71. He's written thousands of columns, all kinds of publications. And as he's told us already this evening, he's got 400 and some odd experts out there that when he goes to research a topic, he grabs these people calls them up, I know this one from experience, and visits with you at length and pulls all kinds of information from you so that he can take and give you as much information as possible in his whatever he's got, 1,000, 1,200, 1,500 words, whatever it is they give him, he gets the job done. So that's that's how that works. Uh, We're going to be back next month. for April, for April, for August, yeah, it's an A word. Uh, for August, we're going to be here for uh, the 14th Thursday night, August 14th, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, is that right, uh, Mr. Bill? That is absolutely correct. Cool. Now, who are we going to have as our guest on that, Mr. Tom? 
Ah, got a surprise for you. Uh-huh. Bill, normally I introduce to you who the guest is for the next month, but since this person knows me and knows you, we'll do it like mystery guests. And I'll let mystery guest just uh, introduce himself, okay? So, mystery guest, say hello to Bill Kendi. Hi, Bill. Am I still a mystery guest, or should I tell him who I am? Well, we'll, we'll tell everybody... This is Carl Stearns. Carl Stearns joined us from Pennsylvania, and Carl's area of expertise, I've known Carl for as long as I've, I've known you, Bill. Um, we're going to talk about, on August 14th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to talk about digital engagement, uh, the idea of how we can engage our existing customers, find ways to make contact with them. Uh, Bill, I think you've said it a bunch of times, it's easier to talk to an existing customer, far easier than going out and finding a, a new one. Is, is that right, Carl? Yes, that's very true. And one of the things that I think small businesses can really benefit from is learning how to take care of the existing customers to build on their referrals and build on their recommendations to others. It creates a really good way of building a community of satisfied, happy customers who will support you. So we will have more than an hour's worth of discussion to talk about when we get together next time. Uh, you'll easily fill the hour, right, Carl? Sure. We're going to talk about email marketing uh, how that ties into social media, and how businesses can use el these electronic means to create campaigns that can really drive business for them. So with that, Carl, I will say thanks for making time to come and join us during the call tonight. And to everybody, it's going to be August 14th, 8 p.m. Eastern. Carl Stearns will be our guest, and we're going to talk about digital marketing and how you can engage your customers. Carl, thanks, sir. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Me too, Carl. Thanks. Okay, so that's our that's our guest for next month. Uh, uh, another person out there who's uh, going to bring their expertise and spend an hour to share with Bill and I and talk about what we can do business-wise. But right now, we're going back to talk to Dr. Phil Perry and, and discuss some more about, um, about business. So tell me, Phil, in your, in your writing... If there were, I don't know, two, three, four, five um, thoughts that seem to permeate everything, you know, if you went back and you could say, I could put all my columns into this many different kind of categories, how many would there be and, and, and what would that be? Could, could you put them down into things like that? I think so. I think uh, uh, I've already mentioned one or two of them. Uh, engagement with a customer is vital to success. Get out from behind the sales counter and mingle. And if you're, in, if you're not a retailer, if you're a small business, get out from your metaphoric sales counter and mingle with your clients. Uh, personal enthusiasm on the part of the owner and managers communicated to the staff makes a huge difference. You know, it sounds like a cliche, uh, and it is. Uh, enthusiasm makes the difference. But it really does when it comes to sales and profits. And treating people well, it sounds like just a moralism. But it's really a pathway to profits. If you treat people well, those people are going to treat 
other people well who are your customers. Treat your staff well, they'll treat the customers well. And also, having a long-term small customer is better than having a short-term big customer. That's something that I've learned in my own business and in the uh, small businesses that I've interviewed. Anything else that uh, particularly comes to mind with them? Um, how about um, how about most favorite story you've ever written? They say, oh, there's well, there's uh, so many of those. The the annual economic forecast is a lot of fun. I uh, interview the economists, and they uh, they kind of. Uh, waffle around and, and try to do the best job they can predicting what's going to happen in the year ahead. And the last few years, uh, their predictions have been a little rosier than the results. So, for example, this year they, they predicted a 3.1% increase in GDP. Looks like it's going to be under that, and that's kind of uh, the, uh, the story for the last couple of years, and uh, certainly that uh, presents difficulties for the small business owners who are looking for a rebound in the economy to help them in their own businesses. So, uh, and that's a, but that's always, a, a, I think, the most interesting story that I do. So are you finding that the, the naysayers are starting to uh, either change their tune or uh, coming less often on your Rolodex of people you want to call? Yes, I, I think uh, I tend to avoid the naysayers because I want to uh, uh, look at reality as it is and provide uh, what information I can for readers to deal with that reality in a productive and profitable way. So naysayers are not going to be too much help. But as far as uh, how people feel about the economy, I think it's, uh, it's slowly getting better. Uh, from the part of the retailers, it, it couldn't get much worse uh, several years ago, as you know, after 2008. But uh, people are starting to slowly feel a little bit rosier and happier about the economy. So I think we're getting places. It just uh, it takes slower. It's a little slower than we, we, would, uh, we would like. So those people that you've had out there that are the proverbial, um, as I heard someone describe the other day, this person has accurately predicted 15 of the last three recessions. Uh, <laughs> uh, doesn't, that doesn't help too much. And uh, I think uh, uh, the, uh, someone like that is not going to be, unless they have a specific reason that they can uh, support. And, and if they were to make that prediction, I think we would still need to come up with ways that uh, readers could deal with that, uh, that negativity in a, in a productive way. Okay. Mr. Bill, any last questions you want to throw to I, I, I think that it's probably time to play or hear that very, very, very special sound that all of us small business owners just love. Ah, uh, yes. Bill, we, we have a tradition here that when it's time to uh, circle the wagons and head to the house, we have, uh, we have a favorite sound that we, uh, we like to play on the, on the way out the door, so to speak, the last sound we want to hear. But uh, in, in getting that, let me tell everyone for last time around, our guest tonight, who is kind enough to join us from Chicago as he is attending the Convention of Business Writers, is Dr. Phil Perry. Phil Perry is a name you recognize for lots and lots of trade magazines, business-to-business uh, -business magazines, having written since 1971, more than 3,000 columns, all, everything from mattresses to 
let's see, Western wear and pool and pool maintenance and cosmetics and you know even some small businesses that uh, like legal stuff. This, those who aren't usually a, a member of our audience. And Phil was kind enough to join us. If you'd like to read more about Phil and see some of the neat stuff that Phil does, I, I would tell you, from the experience long before I met the man, you like his stuff. He writes good stuff. You want to find the magazines out there that Phil Perry has a byline in because it's always a good column. Uh, Phil gave me one today that I read, uh, Family Feud. and. Phil, what, what magazine is Family Feud going to be in? That will be in Beauty Store Business, Aqua Magazine, Tack and Togs, probably half a dozen others or maybe uh, more. So it, it's a great read about business ownership and the concept of family members being in the business. And if Phil and Bill and I talked earlier today. You know, the largest audience we ever had for an e-retailer conversation was a person, and that's all they talked about for an hour. And we've got someone like that hopefully coming, someone that Phil has sent to us for uh, uh, for the September call. And it's a, uh, it's a topic of great importance, but the point tonight is hunt up a Phil Perry column. Editorialcalendar.net on Twitter. Perry Writer is his Twitter feed. Uh, that being said, Phil, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Tom and Bill, and good luck with all of the remaining podcasts. And Bill, thank you, thank you sir. Thanks for coming and being with me tonight. I enjoyed the visit. And here's that magic sound. It's been our pleasure to share fresh ideas and trends from premier small business owners, coaches, and resources. Join Tom Shea and guests again next month for e-retailer conversations right here on PBN, the Profitable Business Network.